As I was reviewing the Psalms and preparing for the teaching tonight, I remembered that when I was a little kid in our house, um, as siblings, when we would play pretend, we would play church. <laughs> so rather than like playing house or playing playground, like we would set up church. We would put our stuffed animals and we would hold a church service as part of our pretend play. So one of my brother's favorite part, at the time we went to a denominational church, his favorite part was passing the offering plate. So he would all the time say, okay, prenda, prenda, and, which meant offering in Spanish, and would pass you know, the offering plate to the different stuffed animals. My favorite part was continuing the sermon. I don't know who I got that from. So just when my family, my parents thought that I was going to wrap it up, I would insert, y entonces, which means, and then, and somehow jump from Noah and the ark to like Jonah and the big fish, right? And just like, y entonces, like just when that, you know, Bible lesson was coming to a close, nope, she's still going. <laughs> um, but it, it just reminded me in going through some of these Psalms, when you, when you hear David, it's like, and the wicked, and then, you know, like the Lord comes and delivers me. And you could just tell he's pouring out as a psalmist his heart and like recounting all the ways that the Lord has been faithful. So we're going to pick up in Psalm 32, in Psalm 32, and, and kind of the way that the Lord has continued to lead each psalm. We'll, we'll highlight just a few key verses, and there'll be a main point in each psalm, and we'll see how it ties all together. So Psalm 32 is the second in what are known as the penitent psalms. So penitence, that idea of repentance, of being contrite about sin, right? Being convicted and really seeing the weight of it. So the penitent Psalms include chapters 6, this one, chapter 32, 38. Probably you can guess if you're familiar with the book of Psalms, the most famous one, Psalm 51. And then we also have Psalm 102, 130, and 143. So once again, the penitent Psalms are 6, 32, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. The psalmist expressed the gravity of sin in these chapters, as well as a drastic repentance, which is acceptable before the Lord. Psalm 32 verse 5 sort of sums this up. He says, I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. No wonder he puts that pause there to really meditate on that fact that you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So that's the first point here that we're going to cover tonight. Iniquity forgiven. Iniquity forgiven. Oh, ladies, may we remember this, my sisters, the fact that our sins, our iniquity, our transgressions have been forgiven. And now, right, as we enter into this new covenant with the Lord based on Jesus' sacrifice, which the psalmist wasn't able to experience, we see what that cost him, that iniquity forgiven because of the cross. 
And just a little side note as we think of the fact that, you know, our sins can be forgiven. And it's so, again, clearly illustrated in verse 5 that he needed to acknowledge it and not hide it and confess it before the Lord. And, and just this thought that comes to mind is that when we attempt to cover up our sin, then our sin cannot be covered by the blood of the Lamb. And that's the choice we have. We can either attempt to cover it up or we can allow it to be covered in the blood of the Lamb. Moving on to Psalm 33. The two main verses that we're going to focus and highlight from this chapter are verse 12 and verse 22. Psalm 33, verse 12 and 22 say, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people he has chosen as his own inheritance. And then jumping down to verse 22, let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us just as we hoped in you. So the key point of Psalm 33 uh, for the purpose of tonight is going to be a nation is blessed. A nation is blessed. And in this season, preparing for election time, and just we see so much division in our, in our country, and we long for this blessing from the Lord upon our nation. But I really think that this promise goes deeper than that. I'm reminded of 1 Peter 2.9. 1 Peter 2.9, where we're told, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So yes, I believe that the promise can apply to, you know, a physical nation with boundaries and its government and its citizens. But I think this promise goes beyond that also to us as his chosen people, his royal priesthood, his holy nation. And that we are blessed when God is our Lord, right? It's not based on uh, who wins the election or who the nation is rallying around, but it's based on the fact that our God must be our Lord. And we need to surrender to him and await his glorious kingdom, which cannot be shaken. And ladies, I really believe it's closer than it's ever been before. Psalm 34. The key point for this chapter is humility rewarded. Humility rewarded. And there's um, the two main verses for that. And we're also going to look at a few other scriptures in this psalm, but are verses 2 and 4. Verses 2 and 4 show us this truth, that humility is rewarded. My soul shall make its boast in the Lord. The humble shall hear of it and be glad. I sought the Lord and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. I think what a promise, what a truth that our world has so quickly turned from, right? Our, our, um, our world idolizes pride. You know, the more proud and arrogant a person is and self-confident, the more that person is praised and promoted. And yet we see that that's not what the Lord honors. That's not what he rewards. He rewards humility. Um, and how does he reward it? He rewards it fully. And we see that in verses 9 through 10. 
Oh, fear the Lord, you saints. Walking in the fear of the Lord is just walking in humility, realizing that His ways are right, that they're not our ways, that they're better than our ways, and that we would fear the Lord means to just walk in that humility. You, His saints, there is no want to those who fear Him. The young lions lack and suffer hunger, but those who seek the Lord shall not lack any good thing. What a beautiful promise to those that walk in humility, that allow just that humble spirit to be what drives them. Psalm 35. We're going to look at verses 26 through 28 in Psalm 35. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who rejoice at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves against me. Let them shout for joy and be glad who favor my righteous cause. And let them say continually, let the Lord be magnified who has pleasure in the prosperity of his servant. And verse 28, and my tongue shall speak of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. So the key point for this psalm is exalted ones will be shamed. Exalted ones will be shamed. Let them be ashamed and brought to confusion who rejoice at, hurt, at my hurt. Let them be clothed with shame and dishonor who exalt themselves. Ladies, the Lord will be our defender. He is our advocate. As a matter of fact, I want to share this quote um, by Charles Spurgeon when he did a, a teaching on this very chapter. He says, Every saint of God shall have this privilege. The accuser of the brethren shall be met by the advocate of the saints. Fight against them that fight against me. If my adversaries try force as well as fraud, be a match for them. Oppose thy strength to their strength. Jesus does this for all his beloved. For them, he is both intercessor and champion. Whatever aid they need, they shall receive from him. And in whatever manner they are assaulted, they shall be effectually defended. Let us not fail to leave our case into the Lord's hands. Vain is the help of man, but ever effectual is the interposition of heaven. What is here asked for as a boon, which means a favor, may be regarded as a promise to all saints. In judgment, they shall have a divine advocate. In warfare, a divine protection. Ladies, I don't know what the enemy is trying to accuse you of lately. I don't know if he's using family members in this heated political season to, uh, you know, throw those passive-aggressive comments on your social media. I don't know if maybe it's your own thoughts that are bringing up past sins or accusing your insecurities of being too big for the Lord to deal with. I don't know what is daring to exalt itself above the truth of the fact that you are the Lord's in your life. But let that be what is put to shame. Don't wallow in the shame that the enemy tries to place on you of the past 
or that he's trying to convince you of you're going to mess up in the future. Live presently in the fact that the only one that needs to be exalted in your life is the Lord and his word. Psalm 36, verses 6 and 10. Ah, This is such a beautiful psalm. Your righteousness is like the great mountains. Your judgments are a great deep, O Lord. You preserve man and beast. In verse 10, oh, continue your loving kindness to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright in heart. The thought that came to mind with this psalm is the fact that righteousness upholds. Righteousness upholds. I've never really thought of it that way, but it's the fact that the Lord in his own righteousness, right, which he allows to become our identity because of what Christ has done in the cross, is what will uphold us. Chuck Smith mentions this in his commentary. He says, and so in this psalm, you'll see in the first four verses, David is speaking again of the wicked and his enemy and the things that they are saying against him. And then in verse 5, he turns to God and to the mercy of the Lord and the faithfulness of the Lord and the righteousness of the Lord and the judgments of the Lord and the loving kindness of God. And how blessed are those people who experience God's mercy and God's faithfulness and God's righteousness and his loving kindness. But they shall be abundantly satisfied, drinking of the river of God's pleasure. Psalm 37. It was so hard to narrow down which verses to highlight in this chapter. So I did it. So we're going to go through a lot of verses. <laughs> um, if you just want to kind of circle them in your Bible or jot them down in your notes before we jump around, it's verses 9, 11, verse 18, 22, 25, 29, 34, and 37. 9, 11, 18, 22, 25, 29, 34, and 37. And I'm going to read all of those, and I'm going to see if you guys can see which word is repeated the most in these um, verses, and that'll be the key point for this chapter. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. Verse 11, but the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. The Lord knows the days of the upright, and their inheritance shall be forever. For those blessed by him shall inherit the earth, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. I have been young, and now I'm old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his descendants begging bread. Verse 29, the righteous shall inherit the land and dwell in it forever. 34, wait on the Lord and keep his way, and he shall exalt you to inherit the land. When the wicked are cut off, you shall see it. Mark the blameless man and observe the upright, for the future of that man is peace. So what is it, ladies? Which word was repeated? Inherit. Yes, inheritance. And that's what the key point is, inheritance of 
peace. Inheritance of peace. What an amazing promise. Halfway through this cluster of Psalms, this divine promise of inheritance is laid before us. And here we arrive at the height and the heart of tonight, our inheritance. That's what each of our key points are going to spell. This idea, this outline that our lives should constantly rest in the fact that we've been given in our inheritance, but our lives should also constantly work towards this inheritance. And I know it sounds like an oxymoron. Wait, how can we rest in the fact that we've been promised an inheritance and simultaneously work towards that inheritance? Those two instructions seem counterproductive. But ladies, that is the beautiful balance we see constantly throughout God's word. I think of the book of Joshua that is basically summed up in, this is yours, go get it. This is yours, go get it. And there's so many promises like that for us in our new covenant. Promises of peace, promises of hope, promises to be patient, promises of every good and perfect gift are there for us. We just have to go and get it. I think of everything in life that has value requires some kind of work. And it's hard because our culture has drifted away from valuing a work ethic. And the idea of having to strive for something and sweat for it and, you know, maybe fail in the beginning but try again, that truth of what we are created to be, to be productive, to, you know, try really hard at something till we get it right is being lost in our, in our um, culture, especially in jun- younger generations where there's this overwhelming sense of entitlement and just this idea that everything should be given to me because I deserve it, because I'm beautiful and I'm here and I'm on this earth. So, like, why shouldn't I have it, right? But ladies, is it any wonder that at the same time where there's more prosperity and more that is given and accessible so easily, there's so much more depression and so much more anxiety and so much more, you know, addiction. And we see that this inheritance of peace that we've been promised really is something that we need to constantly rest in and work towards. Which brings us, brings us to Psalm 38. This chapter, um, incidentally, is something that's read on Yom Kippur, which is the, the Day of Atonement for the Jewish people. Um, They set aside one day for fasting. And um, when Amir was here with us, it landed on Yom Kippur, and he gave us a little bit more of those details of what this Day of Atonement means to that culture. Psalm 38, the key point there is to turn to the Lord in turmoil. Turn to the Lord in turmoil. And we see that specifically in verses 8, 15, and verses 18. God's grace often allows turmoil to come as the result of sin, that we might recognize our sin and turn away from it. And it's hard because a lot of time we think of the consequences as like the punishment of God and like his judgment and his wrath. But more and more I'm realizing that oftentimes those consequences are part of his grace for us to recognize and wake up and turn from that sin as quickly as we can. 
Verse 8 says, I am feeble and severely broken. I groan because of the turmoil of my heart. But in verse 15, we start seeing this shift. For in you, O Lord, I hope. You will hear, O Lord, my God. Verse 18, for I will declare my iniquity. I will be in anguish over my sin. Again, this turning to the Lord in turmoil. Psalm 39. We're going to look at the first five verses. I said, I will guard my ways lest I sin with my tongue. I will restrain my mouth with a muzzle while the wicked are before me. I was mute with silence. I don't know another way of being mute, but you know, it's poetic, you know, language, so we'll just give it to him. I was mute with silence. I held my peace even from good and my sorrow was stirred up my heart was hot within me while i was checking my facebook feed i mean while i was musing the fire burned then i spoke with my tongue lord make me to know my end and what is the measure of my days that i may know how frail i am Indeed, you have made my, death, my days as handbreadth, and my age is as nothing before you. Certainly, every man at his best state is vapor. In some translations, it says, but a breath. So everyone with me, take a deep breath in, and exhale. That's our life here on earth compared to eternity. That's it. A breath. And it's interesting that the Lord has been repeating this theme of taming our tongue, whether we're typing it or writing or speaking it. This idea that the psalmist guarded his words, realizing how short time is and what the priority really needs to be, which is people knowing Jesus and salvation. As much as we want to show people how off they are and the air of their ways and and sometimes i just want to point out that it's very logical like that there's no logic to your argument but i don't you know i just let that sorrow stir inside of me but a lot of times that what that's what it comes down to i'm like but that argument doesn't make sense mm, never mind um so the key point for this is to acknowledge acknowledge the brevity of life doesn't that do something to our priorities when we realize how little life is in compared to eternity? Ladies, let's take every day as it would be our last and really acknowledge, Lord, the only things that matter in life are those things that I do for you, are those things that your Holy Spirit puts on my heart and I follow through with in obedience. That's it. That's all that's going to matter. And I know that's hard to say when we're facing, you know, these difficult times. You know, when we feel we're at this crossroads and that, you know, so much hangs on this election and, and how much we need to pray and do all these things for the nation. I get it. But at the end of the day, the only things that will matter in eternity is not who someone votes for. It's their soul. What can man give in exchange for their soul? 
acknowledge the brevity of life. And that brings us to Psalm 40. We're going to focus on verses 3 and verses 10. So this one kind of has two points with the same letter N, so bear with me. Psalm 3 says, he has, I'm sorry, 40 verse 3. He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. So the first point is a new song of his faithfulness. A new song of his faithfulness. And then verse 10, I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. So I'm sorry, those two actually work together for the new song of his faithfulness. The next point in this um, chapter are going to be verses 5 and 17. It says, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. And then verse 17, But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So the second point for this Psalm 40 is, Needy as I am, the Lord thinks on me. The Lord thinks on me. And it's so undeserving. Right? I'm poor. I'm needy. I am no one. And yet the Lord thinks on me. And not just like, oh, okay, yeah, I guess, I guess I'll create Alicia, whatever. But it's the fact that they are innumerable thoughts. And we know, according to Jeremiah 29, 11, that they're thoughts of peace to give us a hope and a future, not of evil. And that brings us to Psalm 41. We're going to look at the verses 1 through 3. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive. And he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sick bed. The idea here is compassion for others from the Lord through you. Compassion for others from the Lord through you. Uh, Chuck Smith has this to say about Psalm 41. Now this is the first part of the psalm. The first three verses declaring really the interest, the concern, and the blessedness if we just take care of the poor. The interest we should have, the concern for the poor. And um, I was thinking about that idea of like, man, the Lord promises to bless us when we take care of those who are in need, those who are poor. And um, lately I've been thinking a lot of this word, I think it's in the Psalm 2, oh yeah, verse 2, that you will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. And just thinking of how many situations of need there are in our community, how many situations of poverty. And then I was also thinking, again, just with that word deliver, of um, the unborn child, right? And just what a need there is there. 
and how much compassion the Lord has there. And I just held on to that promise, like, Lord, you're going to deliver them in a very real sense from this wickedness. And just that we can be a part of that through our prayers, through finding organizations that, you know, are helping in situations of, you know, unplanned for pregnancies. As well as, you know, different areas that require our attention and our compassion. And, and I really pray that, especially us as a body here at Calvary Chapel Miami, that whatever burden, whatever ministry, whatever calling the Lord has put on your heart, you're not going to compare that and make someone else feel less for not having that same calling. Like our world is so full of need that if anything, the fact that someone else has a calling to minister to another group of people who are needy and poor now frees me to do another area where there's need and there's, and there's poverty and, and the Lord wants to show himself strong on his behalf, on their behalf. Because I see that so much in the body of Christ that people are like, how can you prioritize, you know, sharing the gospel when what we really need is people to have shoes? And then the people are like, how can you prioritize people having shoes when they really need food? And like there's this, this bitter and envy and strife and, and this comparison of callings when if anything, as a body, it's like, you go and you provide shoes for people and I'll go and I'll do this, all the while sharing the gospel of Christ and giving people that message. So sorry about that little soapbox. It's just something that comes to mind when I think of, you know, the fact that we're blessed when we consider these areas of need in a very practical way. And there's no need to belittle someone else for not having the same calling and for attending another area of need. Trust me, there's enough need in the world for all of us. A.R. Fawcett summarizes Psalm 41 in this way. The psalmist celebrates the blessedness of those who are compassionate to the poor conducts strongly contrasted with the spite of his enemies and neglect of his friends in his calamity. He prays for God's mercy in view of his ill desert and um, in confidence of relief that God will vindicate his cause. He closes with a doxology. He closes with this eruption of praise. Entonces? So now what? Well, let's summarize all our key points. Iniquity must be forgiven if a nation is to be blessed. Humility will be rewarded, although the exalted ones shall be put to shame. Righteousness upholds our inheritance of peace. We must turn to the Lord in times of turmoil and acknowledge the brevity of life. Needy as I am, the Lord thinks of me. And for this, I will sing new songs of his faithfulness. Compassion for others will flow from the Lord through you and through me. Enemies may surround, but our eyes are on the Lord. So that will be that last letter E. Enemies may surround, but our eyes are on the Lord. Friends, our inheritance is assured. Let's rest in him and serve him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lord, we thank you so much for your promises. We thank you for the fact that we are not our own, Lord, that you purchased us. We belong to you. I pray for each and every one of my sisters here tonight, God, that you would show them 
the fullness of the inheritance that they have for you in eternity and on this side of eternity, Lord. Show us, Lord, what it means to go and get that victory that you've already won for us, Lord. Whether it's in the area of our thoughts, whether it's in the area of an area of discipline, God, that you've called us to spiritually or physically, God, I pray that we would take hold of that for which Christ has laid hold of us. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.